Welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I talk to writers about writing. Who am I? Joe Blackie. Who's the writer? Well, this month it's Grant Meyerhofer, who is the author of Clog, Gag, Flamingos, Postures, Peripatet, and more. His work is available via Egress, 3AM Magazine, Lit Magazine, and other places. He's got a forthcoming book called Works from 1111 Press. It seems really silly now that I'm releasing this at the end of this month, but early in this month, big old tornado hit Nashville, where a previous guest of the show, Dan Hoy, lived. So I sent him an email and said, hey, uh, what can I do to help? And he suggested that if anybody is so moved by the plight of the people of Nashville to donate some money, that they should do so to the Middle Tennessee Emergency Response Fund. A link is in the show notes. Seems like 40 years has passed since that happened, but imagine being told to stay inside and not having an inside in which to stay. Beyond that, you can support this show by making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash noisemakershow, or you can become a patron on Patreon, and for as little as $2 a month, you can get episodes a week early and occasional pieces of writing that nobody else gets to see. I've spoken long enough, so without further ado, let's get into the chat. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is the first thing I read of yours, and that's Peripatet, which came out from Inside the Castle pretty recently, and mm-hmm. was a, a big deal. Uh, it seemed like it seemed like it got promoted quite a lot, and there was the whole special edition with the hardcover and and all that. Um, there's a lot about that book that's very fascinating to me, but. And you kind of answered this question already in the book, but what? How did that book come about? Um, well, initially, I wrote to John because I had done two other books with him, and there's a really like kind of a particular process that happens whenever I've done a book with him uh, with Inside the Castle that hasn't happened with anybody else and it, it's sort of like a, I, th- I think maybe it's because he writes too and he has sort of a, something in mind uh, about like what books can be and what they can do and um, I mean he's gone into this like in, in his conversation with you and um, elsewhere but so I don't like I definitely wouldn't go to John with like just any book that I was that I had put together or it it has to be something where I kind of feel like the process of editing it and going through it and changing it and pushing it kind of as far as it can go um, is, is something that I think would kind of benefit from working with him. And I knew that like I had done a gag and clog and, they each kind of represented like trying to write, um, I guess in response to like partially living on the internet kind of thing. And then, um, Peripatet was basically my attempt to kind of say, could I do a nonfiction project in like a similar manner, uh, as as those uh, books I had done with John, um, but like trying something different, and I think 
initially I had two manuscripts and one of them was maybe a little bit more kind of geared towards the inside the castle vibe if there is one Mm -hmm. um and that was like a 10,000 word manuscript focusing on uh just like the notion of depression and I was doing stuff like uh writing in response to sections of like the anatomy of melancholy and um, trying to kind of create an updated version of that. And then I had a manuscript that originally I had talked about doing with uh, zero books from the UK, Mm. but they have, they have sort of a weird, they have like a tiered system where they'll accept your book at one of these tiers. And some of them, like I think tier one and two, they pay for everything and it's completely covered. And then three and four, you pay a tiny little bit to cover their editors because they're not totally sure the book will do okay. And I think my book was first accepted at like tier three. And then I kind of protested a little bit and said, well, I can't, I don't have that kind of money because it was a, like a couple thousand bucks, I think. And mm-hmm. so they moved it to tier two. Um, and that, but then the process, I mean, it, it was just really not, I mean, it was unlike any, any kind of publishing approach I had ever done before. And so I just kind of put that book aside and it was more or less like a, a collection of essays and criticism that I had written, but like more recent kind of, I don't know, weirder, like long winded pieces of criticism that I've written and what I did with John was I, I kind of came to him with that manuscript focusing on depression and then this manuscript of these different, like pretty much separate pieces of nonfiction. And I kind of said, I'm thinking that I, I would like to kind of blow these two things up together and, and, um, disrupt them a little bit. And, and I, I kind of had Blake Butler's, uh, his book, nothing in mind, which is sort of, I mean, he's written a lot of criticism, but then he's also like his approach there is this weird blend of kind of experimentation and like emotive writing, I guess. And then also engaging with a lot of sources and stuff. And so had those two things and, and had that kind of an idea for, um, doing a nonfiction book in the way that I had done inside the castle books in the past. And John said, yes. And then we kind of began, I think it was about a year of, you know, rearranging and, and cutting and adding and stuff until we had what, what was the final book. And then John did a lot too, in terms of just like how he like designed the thing and, and made it look, um, which I mean, in the end, like the physical object, like it, it's, I owe a huge debt to him because he's just, I mean, I, I guess, cause he's got his background in architecture and stuff, but just visually with, with books, he, he's willing to kind of try anything it seems like. And so, yeah, that's started as sort of two manuscripts and then they sort of fed into one another and, um, went through sort of this process that I've 
started to really enjoy, which is just working with, with John at inside the castle and seeing, you know, if we've got an idea and maybe like a, you know, a Microsoft word document of enough material that we could, you know, result in a book that, that sort of felt not well, sort of collaborative, I guess. Um, yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting uh, prospect of working on a book with a publisher that it seems like a lot of indie publishers are very hands-off sort of, or, you know, from the limited experience I have, it kind of seems like you write the book, you polish it and you give it to them and, and they um, basically say yes or no, or maybe offer a little bit, but uh, the more I learn about the inside the castle process, it almost sounds like you could come to him with a, just like a, like a proof of concept and, and go from there. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely different, but it's, it's become one of like my favorite things about writing. So I guess it'd be interesting for to hear you compare that because you you've published with a couple other publishers and you have a forthcoming work from this from 1111 right yeah okay. yeah sort of this reissue thing coming in june yeah so what do you find the publication process is like these days like what is it like to be a writer at that stage where you're interacting with people on that level um, I mean, I think at the very beginning for me, it was sort of this process of, because I mean, most, uh, especially, I mean, I think there are even like tiers within independent literature in, in terms of how involved somebody is going to be and how press has even come to come to exist because a lot of times it'll be writers who are running them and um, just kind of realizing, okay, I've got a couple of people or a couple of manuscripts that I can put out um, and that I can also just cut out the middleman and put out my own work this way too. Mm -hmm. um, and that was definitely kind of how things started. Um, I think my first books that, I mean, and, and some are out of print at this point or some have been like rearranged and, and put into uh, more contemporary stuff or, or things like that. Um, and so the majority of the time it's been working with other writers there. I think more recently, I don't, I mean, I don't know if there are like barriers to breakthrough or something like that where you start to publish in, in kind of different ways. I like the, the more recent stuff, the book that I did with, uh, fiction collective two, that was sort of, they have an interesting process too, because they have contests. And, and I think that's kind of the biggest way that they take on new books. They have the Ronald Sukunik, uh, prize and then the Catherine doctoral prize. Um, and then they also have this system where if you are a part of FC2, if you've ever published a book with them, um, you are in a position to like sponsor another writer's book. 
Um, and so I had been in touch with uh, Jeffrey Deschel, who published with them ever since. I think I wrote him like a fan note uh, like three or four years ago or something just because his work has meant a lot to me. Um, but then uh, more, I mean, recently, like in the past year and a half or so, I had started to tell him, like, I, I think I've got this manuscript of, of stories in a novella. It's been a dream of mine to work with FC2. So if you would ever consider like working with me on it, that would be great. Um, and he agreed. And, and so he sponsored the manuscript. And I guess, I mean, they have like yearly meetings and stuff um, where like Lance Olson and, and uh, Joanna Ruoco and all these writers are getting together and they look over manuscripts that have been submitted for like these contests. But then they also look at stuff that whatever, like a handful of writers have brought in and, and said they want to sponsor. Um, and so that's how Drain Songs came together. He, I guess he gives the manuscript to a couple of people there and they um, vote on it. And then after that, the process was, I, I received like a, a packet of notes. And so they have, you know, stuff that, people on their board said, you know, this might not work or this might be a way to kind of make this a more enticing project and stuff like that. And you're kind of free to take or leave stuff. I wound up taking a lot of it just because by that point in the submission process, I had stopped thinking about that book for, for a little while. So I was more, I, I was quicker to trust whatever fresh eyes there there were on the manuscript. Um, and so that's kind of how things went with FC2. There's been, I'm trying to think, other... I mean, I, I wound up uh, publishing Flamingos in the first place with um, Itna Press from, from, I think it's run out of Brooklyn. And that's sort of another press where um, it is run by a writer and he i think he had published a couple of of books with other presses and sort of decided that it did make sense to just start putting his own work out there because he felt like he could he could do it simply and and it would you know be to his liking and um i had submitted my uh, my book postures which came out in the meantime between submitting it. And so he wrote back and he didn't, he hadn't known that uh, it had been published by publication studio. And so he said, uh, do you still want to publish this? And I said, Oh, it's already out with somebody else. And he said, Oh, do you have anything else? And um, I sent him sort of a pretty chaotic word document of stuff. And he, he had been, working with uh, Travis Jeppesen on, on reissuing his book Victims. And Travis Jeppesen did more kind of weird writing in, in the vein of what I had sent him in this manuscript. And so he asked if I would be willing to work with Travis to like bring it up to kind of a, a printable state um and so that's kind of how that one went in terms of editing it was sort of back and forth of 
um, me sending him updated drafts and him sending me a page or two of notes and um, going like that. I mean, that's, I think that for the most part, when I've, when I've published, I've, I've been working with other writers in, in some capacity. And, and I guess I, I think in that respect, I've been kind of lucky because there, there is a lot more willingness to kind of say, Oh, I see, I see what you're trying to do here. I don't, it might not necessarily be my thing, but I'm not going to kind of stand in your way because I know that I'm trying to do just as, as strange of stuff. I mean, I guess, I mean, that's sort of what, uh, FC two was, was started as. And I think, I mean, a lot of my publishing experiences have been similar to that, I guess. Um, yeah. I like that. That gives me a lot of hope as a person without a, a, a published uh, physical thing, right? That, that's a, it's kind of nice to know that there exists a community that actually works together. Um, because I'm, I'm sort of sour just on like the concept of community. So it's, it's nice to hear <laughs> that, that it's actually a thing that exists. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when it's been like best case scenario, it's, I, I've been sort of, uh, communing with people who are coming at it from that, that kind of same perspective of, like I know that I mean, I I was kind of surprised just because I I've been lucky with with John where our ideas for stuff have have been relatively close, but like he'll talk about um, how he doesn't have a very high acceptance rate because I mean he he's got particular tastes and stuff, but we we're definitely coming to whatever like pocket of contemporary literature were in with a similar feeling of like I have submitted this thing to so many places and I don't see like I've had suggestions I've had you know uh, people praising things I've had like tentative stuff and I, I'm just sick of it and I, I think that there are I mean it's it's nice because it's not just that you can find someone to publish you but i've also i mean i i consider a lot of the the uh publishers and stuff that i've worked with good friends at this point because they started publishing out of a sense of i mean just dissatisfaction with the submission process and everything and i submitted this manuscript out of that similar sense of kind of I'm, I know that this thing does what I want it to do. Um, and I'm just tired of hearing no. And it's, so I think there are a lot of presses that are kind of functioning as little writing communities these days. So what is your process of finding new things to read? I find that that's something that feels difficult when you're looking for, for so many tiny little cult things, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think that it has, um, I almost feel like it's gotten more difficult too, just because, I mean, even like just, just thinking about something like Twitter, there are, 
on a given day, I, I probably see 50 to 100 new things that are, you know, either books or, or pieces that I, I might read. And I think for a long time, the one, or I guess it was kind of two, the, the two things that I consistently relied on just to read new stuff and every time I, I read it based on this person's take or something, I was satisfied and I, I really enjoyed it was when Blake Butler was writing consistently for Vice. And he, I mean, I don't even, uh, you think about like critical figures like Pauline Kael or whatever uh, with regard to film, like, I think that that is something that Blake Butler did for for everybody for a long time was just showcasing a lot of weird stuff that was happening in writing and not even just in America all over the place and looking into the past when he that kind of assembled list of short pieces that he wrote for Vice, um, sometimes talking about multiple books or sometimes interviewing somebody or whatever. For a long time, that was like the place where a new one would come out and whatever it was, if it was a re review of three books, I would I would pick those up and just kind of uh, it was it was nice to be able to kind of rely on like if if he's talking about something, I'm, I'm going to probably enjoy it. And then I guess um, the kind of community around HTML giant for a little bit, I like wrote for them a little at the end of it, or well, I guess mm. it's kind of still going on to an extent or, or something, but um, got, you know, put onto things through that. And then I think maybe the, the big one that I still consistently rely on in terms of, oh, here's the thing I wouldn't have thought of at all that I might check out is probably Dennis Cooper's blog. Mm. Um and then beyond that, it's it's sort of a mixture of like things that I I might get in the mail as as consideration to like review, or it's presses that I've just kind of come to rely on, um, or just kind of playing that that uh, like assembling. Uh, literary histories on on your bookshelf sort of deal where i realized that like uh, through through reading sam lipsite like oh there was this this editor this gordon lish and i seem to enjoy most of the stuff that he had any hand in and so going into that stuff and then i mean finding dennis cooper when i was a i mean a while back and um and then, I mean, that was the cool thing, too, because for a while he even put out a series of books. And uh, so it's it's usually kind of stitching things together that way just by association and stuff, I guess. OK. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm glad that we we uh, I'm glad that you were the first person on, on the show this episode to mention Blake Butler, because usually it's me. And I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's been mentioned on every episode because uh, similarly, I was, as you were talking, I was remembering having like his 
his best books I read this year article for whatever year up on my phone and Barnes and Noble, like pacing through and hoping that Barnes and Noble happened to have any of the books that he had talked about. And more often than not, they didn't of course, but, um, yeah, it, it definitely seems like there are those figures that are the holdovers from the old alt lit scene that have managed to, steer whatever this currently is into a direction that uh, makes some semblance of sense. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, one of the things, as I was reading Gag, so we're going back to, to 2017 here, one of the things I found really interesting was the um, redaction of of mm-hmm. words and and how the... I'm going to call it redaction, but how the blacking out didn't cover the words entirely or left certain letters and the internal monologue of reading it is like garbled, right? So Mm -hmm. you're you're like talking to somebody with a bad digital phone connection or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. Was that a you thing or was that a John thing? It was sort of, I I think the first time it happened, it was because I was feeling kind of anxious and um there's been a lot of that with with books with him so far just and and usually i i think that's a good thing because i like i mean again writers like dennis cooper who like in terms of the content there there's a sense of discomfort of like what am i doing reading this thing about this stuff like what what is this about why why am i responding to it and stuff um so part of it was that was just me saying i i felt sort of off about including this thing or or something like that and i can't remember who suggested it in the first place but i know that part of it was that that way of dealing with anxiety and eventually there would be things where it, and it was sort of fun and then and i mean in retrospect it, it sort of makes for an interesting approach to editing where i would say instead of can you cut this can you black this section out which it, it was a nice way of i guess still sort of leaving things there um that that maybe were uncomfortable or just felt like if in the new direction of the book didn't make a whole lot of sense. But, um, I think like carrying it through the rest of the book and kind of toying around with it was, was definitely more prompted kind of by John because he, I mean, there was this realization of, um, we don't have to get rid of stuff. We can, we can black it out and that's going to sort of disrupt the reading process. So it was something that he was like really on board for. And it kind of eased my discomfort a little bit, um, and, and made for sort of a, a different approach to things, I guess. Okay. And there's, there's certain sections also that kind of feel like reading a stroke. And so, Mm -hmm. Between that and, and the collage images, there's there's a lot going on, and one of the things I notice, or or feel, or suspect people think, uh, which informs how I feel about how I read uh, 
for lack of a better word, experimental pieces is this feeling that, um, like gag for me is, is difficult to read because it's, you know, the words aren't always in an order that I expect them to be in, or there's words that aren't there. Like reading it (laughs) out loud is such a different experience than reading it in my head because I think in my head, um, it's like those old emails that used to get forwarded around where they jumble up the letters in the middle of the word. And it's like, if you can read this, you're super smart and look how cool the brain is sort mm-hmm. of things. And how does, how does one go about writing something like that? Even. I think that it was definitely like the first example of what I was talking about a little with, with parapet where um, I came to, to John talking about, uh, Tan Lin's work, the, especially the, um, I guess it can just be shortened to, to seven CV, um, which is, it's like seven controlled vocabularies and the joy of cooking and all that stuff where, um, he sort of creates a the shell of a book or something but but you're just but you're kind of drawn into looking at the shell and and thinking about that um and so that was one of the first things i think i talked about with john and then i also had this manuscript that i had been doing things to um hoping to sort of create i i guess a similar experience and just kind of it, it was really enjoyable. I always I compare the kind of approach to writing that to like maybe getting and 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 toying around with like distortion pedals for a guitar, um, mm-hmm. where I would do. I mean, it it's sort of a. Uh, I mean, I, I've heard other people talk about doing this as well, but like taking a chunk of writing that, for whatever reason didn't feel entirely um there and and doing you know uh, a quick simple automatic translation to like romanian or something on google translate but then um looking up like another translation software where i can do from romanian back to english but it's not the same uh program as like google translate so there's like a a mismatch or even if you still do it in google translate if you if you translate a a paragraph of english to romanian um and then do that to uh, spanish or whatever um and then back to english it's gonna mess with it a little bit and so i was doing things like that which i think that first started with this uh this user's manual that's going to be coming out in in the book works with um 11 11 this summer and and so i had a manuscript of things i had kind of been doing to old writing and to journals and and just pieces that i had that never really went anywhere and i was doing things like that or or um you can find things to like convert stuff to morse code and then convert it back and it it messes with it or there i mean there's like a simple one called text evo um that will just 
automatically rearrange all the lines um so that the the order of the thing is like entirely uh thrown off and and it was things like that um that that kind of a wound up uh generating the manuscript that became gag and and within that too there was the process of kind of working with john and having him saying or or pushing things and that's that's sort of he he's really good at um i don't know editing uh, i i think that editing experimental stuff is i mean it makes sense that it would be incredibly difficult to do because usually experimental stuff the reason it is that way is because it's so deep inside the writer's head and you can't really have an editor come in and say oh yeah like uh, i totally understand why <laughs> there's this section that converts to you know x's instead of letters or or whatever it is um but john is somebody who he he can just kind of keep keep pushing you a little bit and and keep kind of believing in um the thing along with you uh and getting excited about it especially when it came to little little kind of tricks like that to to make the writing feel new again and i think you know that's because john's writing too and um working on his own stuff so so geeking out about like oh i i just realized that if i i mean google translate has like they have esperanto on there and all kinds of stuff and yeah. i mean it, it'll take you know a simple every now and again you'll you'll get like the word lamp and it'll be converted to uh I don't, you know, uh, lighting vestibule or the, some weird association or something, and it it can make the the work that much more enjoyable to look at, I guess. And and so it was kind of that process. That some somehow I feel relieved that there was mechanical intervention <laughs> in in that book. One, because as I was reading it, I was wondering about that. And mm -hmm. one of the things that makes Mike Klein's Lonely Men's Club uh, so enjoyable to me, I think, is his essay that goes along with it that talks about how he made it. Mm -hmm. Right? There's Definitely. The, the sort of almost narrative experimental writing thing reminds me a lot of your sort of uh like action painting jackson pollock sort of gestural something but you don't get that you you can't feel that when you're reading something off of a page mm -hmm. um and and like we were talking about gag kind of does that with with the redactions um what do you think about um the idea of talking about these tools or tricks or procedures. Do you think that, because at this point I can only guess how many people actually do something like that. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you have a position on like, should we be talking about this sort of craft more or at all, or included in the text itself? I don't know. It it, it makes me because um, something that 
sort of felt like encouragement. I mean, Mike's essay on it, like uh, I think on an old Twitter account that I deleted at one point, I had shared that and basically said like for gag and clog, this is sort of the, the artist statement for those as well. I mean, it might as well kind of be because it, it felt similar and he just articulated it really well and made it feel kind of vital where I, I think that that's like the, the risk you run of, of when you start toying around with stuff like that, it can feel maybe kind of flat or, or with like massive experiments that like writers like Christian Bach or, um, Kenneth Goldsmith do it's it's not it's not necessarily going to send people in droves to wanting to read the thing maybe owning it and having it around is nice or something but um I do I mean it, there there was an interview with Blake Butler where he talked about for uh for 300 million taking stuff from like court transcripts with conversations with people like Manson and David Koresh and, and everything to try and write a book about this sort of a person. Um, and actually taking like a, like the middle of a sentence where one of them were, were talking about whatever it was. And then, um, putting that on his computer as the beginning of this new section of writing that he was doing and trying to actually like push the work more into that, that vein for that purpose and hearing that and, and hearing somebody, I mean, not, not just kind of experimenting with cutting stuff up or, or rearranging work from other people or something, but hearing it actually feeding into trying to like make this book 300 million that much more of a legitimate exploration of, you know, extreme violence and psychopathy and, and all this stuff. Um, that, that was something that I held on to for a while. And so I do, I do think that there is a lot of not just merit, but, um, I, I think it can add to the experience. I think with gag, I don't remember if it was ever talked about um in terms of adding something like that it's definitely like it's it's there with parapet because there are like quotes from other writers who do this kind of stuff and there's consideration of like the writing process in that actual book um so i do think that it's something i for me it's it's only ever added to by by having the writer or the the you know poet or or whatever discuss this sort of thing um maybe that's like a i I think some of that has to do with like the writer perspective because i always looked to other writers like for the first couple of years where i was reading knowing that i wanted to write i i always looked for I, I thought of it as like permission, um, finding writers who were going like off the deep end enough with stuff or, or finding ways that they would talk about certain feelings or talk about like violent subject matter or 
whatever it was, I, I thought of it as, oh, okay, they did that. And, and they, you know, fucked with their document, uh, in that way or, or something like that. So I can do that. Um, so I'm, I'm all for kind of, I guess, lifting the hood when it, when it comes to this kind of stuff and, and talking about like the machinery and whatnot. Um, if, if for nothing else, then just, it, it kind of gets me excited about like what writing can actually do. Um, I don't know though. Is, is there like hesitation from, from your perspective or is it, is it sort of like a, I don't know, like the, the authorial intent kind of deal or something like that? Hmm. I, I know that especially when I read something that is unlike anything I've ever read, I'd like to know how it got to be that way. And I remember that interview with Blake Butler. I think I read, read it as well when 300 million came out and when I talked to my more normie like coworkers or friends at the time about the about the book, that was kind of a selling point that I used talking about it. Like he did this thing. Um, the thing mm-hmm. that is also exciting about that book for me at the time is like the profoundly long sentences and just blocks of text I'd never seen. Like I'd never read um, Samuel Beckett at that point or anything like that. It was like high fantasy and then Blake Butler and now I'm here. And Mm -hmm. uh, knowing how things work is interesting for me because when I read something like gag or, um, or plats or uh, anything like that, 300 million, um, I see something that excites me to write and I want Mm -hmm. to know, how to write like that. Like, cause there's the, the idea that somebody is writing gag in their bedroom and like precisely picking out these words. And the question in my mind is like, well, how do you even get your mind in that state? What are you doing? Um, and then kind of understanding, you know, that you're using translators to mess stuff up or word randomizers or putting it into, you know, uh, hexacode or or whatever is 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 useful there's an old um i had a a jazz history class in college and the professor when we started getting into like free jazz and modal jazz and stuff like that the professor said you know people who who liked jazz kind of stopped listening to jazz around the time that they're playing stuff with no scales but Mm. other jazz players really liked it because mm-hmm. they understood everything that's happening. They understood why the drummer put that fill there and why they're playing in this key now for f- two seconds and and whatever else. And I, you know, as a writer, feel like um, I want to understand why things are happening the way that they're happening in books. So I'm all for it. And I, like, I, I would love an essay within a book that is longer than the text itself about like how you went about writing it. And mm-hmm. I mean, I feel that, that this whole show experiment is, is kind of 
an extension of that because you read Stephen King's on writing or um, that other podcast, Zero Point Fiction. He did a the scathing review of um, the Fight Club guy's book about how to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And as much as I enjoy reading things like that, I find it um, unfulfilling in a way because like, yeah, like, I don't know. I feel like if you as a writer can't figure out a way to make a character feel like a real person um, getting published or whatever, uh, selling selling the, the screenplay option is, is maybe the furthest thing that you should be worrying about. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I read something from Inside the Castle. I'm, like, slowly working my way through all of those books because Mm -hmm. it's, it's so unlike anything that I've ever experienced before. And every time I come across a new book thinking in my mind that I understand how this press works and, and what the style of writing is, I come across something completely different and find myself feeling, you know, like supremely uneducated on something. It, it feels very occult. It feels like everybody else knows what's going on. And, and you know, I want to get the 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 Freemason ring. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, as, as we're talking about experimental writing, there's a question that's been in my mind. And, and maybe you have input on this, but... The question is, why is experimental writing always so dark? Think about, I mean, things kind of in this vein a lot. And um, I almost think that sometimes like uh, maybe a good kind of case study for it is to think about someone like Charlie Kaufman who is, I mean, it has kind of his foot in experimentation and has managed to, uh, achieve probably, you know, the, the heights of, of what someone with a mind toward experimental artwork, um, could, could probably ever hope for. Um, and I, uh, so maybe an example of his with like something like adaptation, uh, is, is sort of how I frame my thinking for it. So with adaptation, it is, I mean, it, it's experimental in all sorts of ways. You can talk about, um, you can talk about, you know, the, the, death of the author, postmodernism, all sorts of stuff, but it's funny. And so I almost wonder if when things are experimental, but they're also funny, there's less of a tendency for people to look at them and, and talk about what makes them experimental or, or like the ways that were composed or, or things like that. Um, but then if you take something like uh, Synecdoche, New York, where it's very dark and it's very depressing and it, I mean, it feels like you've lived through, you know, the, the 
death of someone close to you or something by the time you finish that film. Um, and people do talk about that as, as a more experimental thing and reviews of it kind of talk about how it's done and, and how in, you know, there's, there's the thing with the house on fire in it and there's the creation of this play within a play. Um, and uh, with that, there's there's sort of less of an audience that is going to see that thing versus um, the audience that went and saw adaptation. And so on the one hand, like I, I, I feel like maybe stuff that people talk about as experimental, um, it it that's the stuff that usually registers as dark and, and that's why people want to kind of pick it apart. Um, and the stuff that is experimental, but also happens to be funny is sort of just treated as this like quirky dispatch from, you know, some neurotic person who has, you know, decided to make something entertaining for once or something like that. So I guess, I mean, um, I just I, I tend to think that when people think of experimentation in art or writing, especially, um, they're more likely to talk about aspects of it being experimental if it so happens that there isn't a whole lot of humor that one can kind of pull from that stuff. And I mean, maybe an example from literature would kind of be david foster wallace and and mm -hmm. infinite jest yeah. where that's a, a big ambitious weird experimental thing that you know graduate students will be talking about for the next 200 years because there's that much there that can be talked about but it's also really funny and and so it kind of gained a little bit of cultural purchase and and um so it, it kind of walks that line, I guess. Um, but I do, I mean, I, I do think that there is a, a tendency toward uh, darkness or heaviness or something when it comes to experimentation, maybe just because the, the whole act of doing it, the act of making a film that you're kind of aware is experimental. I mean, that by itself is is alienating when compared with making a film that you know is fun and and funny and and lots of people are going to respond to it if you go into the thing knowing like i'm not going to have much of an audience for this thing and and i know that but i also know that i feel driven to you know write a book that starts in the middle of a uh, i don't know what it, whatever the experiment is um so maybe some of it is even just like awareness of of the history of the thing you go into it knowing yep i'm not gonna you know become a millionaire doing this i'm not gonna uh be on the today show tomorrow being interviewed about this book that i've written but i'm i'm sure of of what i'm going to do that by itself is is you know it's not a downer i mean it's it's good because 
you know the tradition that you're working in and and you know who your heroes are and you know what you're trying to do but you know you're you're not gonna be kind of wined and dined based on on something like that so maybe that even feeds into the subject matter a little bit so like like people who are writing these experimental things they're they're already um on kind of the losing side yeah. to an extent and and so there's an awareness of that and then maybe that other thing where if something happens to be experimental and funny people will mainly focus on the funny yeah. uh a little bit i don't know well, it, that's an interesting proposition because the experimental and funny sort of gets categorized as absurd i think Mm -hmm. you think about monty python's flying circus and you know having like Karl marx doing trivia about soccer players in in one sketch and then two people slapping each other with fish in the next sketch and and both are presented as having like equal value and and being uh intended to be equally as funny is an interesting thing but i mean you look back to like the early surrealists and a lot of their stuff is sort of absurd. Their plays and costumes and and things like that. The the other thing that came to me as you were talking too is within experimentation because people are so unsure of what it is they're consuming. Um, it's a lot easier to make something tense or uh, uncomfortable. Because that's kind of the default state you get going into something. When mm-hmm. you, when you open up a, a book of fiction that's presented as a novel, but you start seeing diagrams and math equations, suddenly you you know it's hard to say yes, I'm ready for whatever romance tale comes out of this. Mm-hmm. So I guess it just lends itself to it more, but it's. It's interesting in in a tradition, you know, experimental writing. It it's interesting that you don't see the experimentation with tone quite so much. And it's not really a complaint. It's just something that I I notice because I do it too. Yeah, it is. I mean, and then I the, one book that I think about a lot and and kind of because of its moment when it came out um and it it kind of lends itself to this sort of thing is is Dahlgren um by Delaney where when that book first came out I think it was the 70s uh and Delaney was like a known sci-fi writer um fairly popular and I think he might have even at that point had have published some of his stuff that focused was like nonfiction focusing on writing or focusing on sexuality and, and race and everything. Um, but when Dahlgren came out, it was like flying off the shelves and was like an airport book that, that people were picking up and were, were kind of talking about. Um, but it's, that's definitely an example of, a book that is like overtly experimental um, 
to the extent that it, I mean, it tries to kind of rewrite the structure of, of Finnegan's Wake as something like new and, and even stranger. But at the same time, it has like the enough recognizable uh, kind of genre stuff from from his his uh, more clearly like science fictional stuff. Um, I don't know if that's I mean, in, in some ways you could compare Dahlgren to like The Road by Cormac McCarthy, where they're apocalyptic. They are very dark. They um, have heavy emphasis on like not totally understanding what's going on and and like the physicality of these people in this apocalyptic kind of setting. And then the road was was kind of just as popular as well. Um, but there are these weird. I mean, and and then when you bring in the road, it it brings to mind like especially the first season of true detective where that was like a more experimental genre work that was like really dark and Dahlgren's really dark as well. Um, but then by, I mean, whatever the, the, maybe it's just like, we, we accept this thing because it's, it's dark and it's telling us something about like something fundamental about our humanity or whatever and and so it gets this massive audience but that's something i think about all the time too like these weird cases where for whatever reason a work that was like totally experimental and dark or funny um really just uh, grabbed the public's imagination at the time yeah uh it's i'm remembering now one of the things that uh i think jj abrams does this and i think he does it uh to very limited success but i feel like um in his his novel that he did with doug dorst that came out recently s Mm -hmm. that has um it's a novel that's and eh, just sort of like literary, but in the margins, there's a dialogue between two characters and there's different colors of pen ink for like different pass throughs of the book. And, and that's hmm. sort of a, a like a thriller detective sort of thing with with romance in it that um but of course, J.J. Abrams goes goes so far with trying to make so many things mysterious that you almost don't want to try to solve whatever riddles are in there. Um, hmm. And the the Wikipedia page for for Dahlgren, there's a, a blurb from William Gibson that says Dahlgren is a riddle that was never meant to be solved. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joyce said something similar about Ulysses, where he said, "I wanted to write something specifically that would make the the literature professors scratch their heads for hundreds of years." Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting thing. I don't, I, I don't know exactly, like if I think I even want to see something that's lighthearted and jovial that <laughs> was made. Um you know by by these methods we were talking about earlier it seems like a tall order but, mm-hmm. but 
but I don't know. It seems like something that at least deserves to be questioned every now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, before we finish up, do you want to talk about uh, works coming up here in June? Yeah, definitely. Um, that one was sort of it's it's funny because eleven eleven they just did early stuff from Sam Pink and then I think they've uh, I've talked to uh, Andrew at eleven eleven he's he's talking with another writer about possibly doing a sort of like a collected thing, um, but this was a, a situation where. First, I had a story manuscript with some stuff from Marcel that had been updated, um, and I sent that to him, and and he was on board to uh, do a book of stories. And then um, I found out that the um, whatever the contract with Itna Press uh, for Flamingos was up and that so um it was like technically out of print and so i came to andrew and said do you think we could also do like a maybe stories and a novella kind of deal where flamingos is this novella on the line between that and a novel um and he was on board to do that and then um same sort of thing happened just corresponding with uh publication studio because they 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 have like little stores all over the place and and um different people run different ones and and it it's a different approach it works but um it, it got to the point where i was corresponding with them and sort of wondering uh what my options were to do with with my book postures that that they had published as this part of like they called it their fellow travelers series um and they wrote to all of the people who had published with that series and basically said if you want you can take your book and and publish somewhere else because we're kind of changing management and things like that so um then i realized that and and so i came to Andrew and said, would, would you want to maybe do like one of those flipped, uh, flipped books where one side was stories and, and this novel and the other side was flamingos or something. And you flipped it over sort of like the, the Jeff Jackson, um, destroy all monsters thing. Oh, yeah. Um, and he said, sure. Yeah, we can add another book to it. That's fine. It's already got, you know, it's, it's blurbs and everything. And so he agreed to do that. And, um, then I kind of, I went back and rewrote a lot of the, the shorter stuff that was in it and added things that, um, hadn't been included in kind of the final editions of flamingos and, and postures and just, you know, we, we both ran through and did updates and edits and everything. And then there's this other thing that, um, it eventually became the book clog, but, uh, the musician, uh, Lorne had this, he, he was putting out this project called the maze to nowhere, which he did. He released it. Um, and I think uh, there's one 
section of this this thing that I wrote in the first release of that. Um, but I wrote a thing that was basically going to be liner notes for that. Uh, and it was like a fake user's manual for a saw that also featured a section where the person who bought the saw could write about their experience with it. Mm-hmm. And that was like the very first thing I did where I toyed around with translating and, and things like that. And so Lauren and I, for a while, we just, we didn't really communicate that much. And so doing the user's manual as liner notes just kind of fell by the wayside. And eventually I picked it up and kind of completely rewrote it as more of a a book uh, than what it originally was. It was really intended as like this visual thing that had pictures in it and uh, symbols and and all sorts of things um, constituting the pages. Uh, And that became Clog, which I did with, with John, where I came to him with that original user's manual and said, I want to, like completely redo this thing and he was on board but then i had that original user's manual just this file which has all those images and all the visual stuff and and everything and so that was the final thing i came to andrew and said would you also want to include this and at that point we dropped the idea of having it be like a flipped book and decided to just do it more as like a a collected thing um and so we just decided i mean to call it works because the idea of calling it like collected something where i still feel like i'm relatively early in my career if i'd even call it that which felt kind of presumptuous so just called it works and it contains each of those I mean, basically four different books, and then we're, we kind of reached out to a couple of people to write. Like, uh, There's already Sean Kilpatrick's introduction for um, Postures, but then German Sierra wrote one for Flamingos, um, and then Lorne is writing one for the User's Manual, um, and then the short fiction one will have an introduction, and the other little kind of... Um, perks like that just to kind of make it a, a worthwhile object to kind of reissue some stuff in a new version and then also uh, put out some some stuff that never really saw the light of day. That's awesome. I love the the I want I almost called it album art the 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 title or the the cover art. Yeah. Yeah, the um I think yeah, his name's Tyler at eleven uh, eleven. Uh, Does really, I mean, all of their stuff has been cool so far. But I was kind of blown away by that. And then it was, the painting on there is um, Sam Robertson's uh, that he did. That I asked him to if he would do it, and yeah, feel lucky. Well, awesome. Um... Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything, um, anything that you want to plug? Any website, Twitter, call to action, quick manifesto, anything? Um, I 
I'm not, it's tough right now to even think about stuff like that. But I guess, I mean, just kind of keeping, um, keeping an eye out for, I mean, because there have been writers all over, uh, Twitter who have been candid about like losing opportunities and stuff like that. And I feel like that's, I mean, in terms of like this little scene that that's going on, that's, that's like the most important thing is just keeping an eye out for people who are actually like facing hard times with everything that's going on. And I mean, I've seen it for bookstores and I've seen a couple of individual authors, um, share that kind of stuff. And I mean, usually it's something that I will like at least retweet or something like that just to, uh, put more, put any eyes on it. Um, but I think that's kind of the biggest thing right now, just keeping an eye out for presses or, or bookstores or, or people who are up against it with everything going on. That'd be the only plug. So this is a little piece from near the end of the uh, novella section of Drain Songs. Um, okay. What Henry became obsessed with was language. The besotten Joyce, maybe, or the notion of Dublin torn to guts and drunk dead as the light faded June 16th. The night. Finnegan's night. Fine again. Finn again. Finn again. Finnegan's wake. Finnegan's wake. H.C. Earwicker. He became convinced the tune the old man hummed who drove them was about Molly Bloom. Stories of a couple broke and hopeless along the Liffey. Charlie's on the dole and they sleep in strawberry beds. He sang it and took them to the YMCA for them to sit in locker rooms, feeling normal again, feeling alive, not dead, new, life breathed into them, carrying them over across something, across the river, two coins on their eyes, awakened sobriety medallions placed over their eyes, undying, maybe, perhaps not, a god of the dead and Charon. He became obsessed with names, noted them, laid them down on scraps of paper until his pockets were full like Malloy sucking stones. He'd read them over lying in bed with a small lamp, then read bad thrillers. He enjoyed the rides, most leaving treatment, leaving rehab, feeling free, writing scraps, singing songs, listening to the old man hum in his thick Irish sleep on air, and everyone speaking behind him, talking about drugs, talking about girlfriends, talking about competitions, talking about drink, talking about smoking, talking about the nature of addiction, obsession, mania, perhaps. I am not a sex addict. I am not an alcoholic. I am not an addict. I am a nymphomaniac. I am a drunk. I am a dope fiend. He enjoyed their talking but needed to leave. He felt he needed to flee this place and head someplace else. It made him think on dying. He never much thought about death, about the end of his life, except in the abstract or in the brief teenage urge towards sleep. He'd feel it maybe 
overwhelming then. Henry would leave and become addicted to gambling, picking up lottery tickets, smoking compulsively, constantly playing things on his computer for money, trying to come up with schemes for more, creating music. His eyes were sunken in. He'd relapse frequently, then pick up more lottery tickets, resented the meetings, resented the rooms, the lives inside them. He was drinking himself to death inside of rooms alongside you. You drank and sat there spitting on yourselves, listening to contemporary music, trying to die a bit, eke a bit more toward death, to feel complete. He wanted it, worshipped it, and and walls only proved a step toward oblivion. He'd have it. It was great. He'd won money. He was successful because he bet with a multitude of groups around the city and made more and more money and felt all right about himself, his life, but nothing seemed to quite click for him. Like drinking, he'd bring home bottles of whiskey, something to turn his brain off, he'd say, something to start the weekend a bit, and suddenly he'd be dead drunk outside your place, down on the street, listening to the neighbors, watching as people walked out toward violence, a metropolitan way. You lived down the street from where you got your haircuts and there you'd spend hours sobering up next day and lighten your eyes receiving cuts and it could take a whole day and you'd eat a large piece of bread a piece and feel much more at ease having soaked the swill within and you'd both shower and laugh at each other and spit and vomit up blood and smoke in there and your lives together were kind of seamless kind of nice you both wanted to make art and you both hated absolutely everyone outside of the apartment so you might stay close not fucking but something there feeling there for one another like brothers maybe you'd imbibe the same things and suffer the same you told him when you died you'd like to hang yourself it might feel right you know wrap a thick cord around your neck then step off sort of old-fashioned it might just might feel just right he said he wanted to die by taking a substantial overdose of heroin and you understood this but made him expand on it he said it would be the best feeling in your life followed by absolute emptiness and that's all he'd ever really worked toward you think that ultimate quiet you wanted to sleep and feel at ease you respected him for this and listened as he told you and you'd watch old 70s pornography with rooms full of sweat and bad speaking and things were calm 